Good morning, church. Um, those, were, those were kind words. It has always been uh, my greatest joy that you all put up with me as often as you have over the past few years of, of seminary and after. Um, I'm very excited to be with you uh, here this morning. If, if you turn to the book of James, um, we'll be looking at, at James uh, chapter 1, verses 2 uh, through 4 this morning. Um, before we go to the text, let us go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Uh, gracious Lord, as we come to your word, uh, we are just humbled and in awe of your great faithfulness. Uh, Lord, we, we are here not by our own merit, uh, not because we deserve uh, anything, but only because of your uh, abundant goodness, uh, your abundant mercy and love uh, that you have given us uh, through Christ. And so we come here humbly and just plead uh, for, for more grace and more mercy uh, that you would uh, convict us uh, through your word. Uh, be with me that I might preach with clarity uh, and say only uh, what is from your word and only what is true, uh, that me, we may go from here uh, trusting you more. We may go from here looking more like Christ. Uh, and in his name, amen. All right, so James uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Um, one, one thing you may not know about me is that in uh, junior high and, and high school, I was a competitive swimmer. Um, uh, I swam uh, for years. I, I loved uh, swimming, uh, but there was, there was one event uh, that I absolutely detested, uh, and that was the mile. Um, now, if, if you've never swum competitively, you might, might not realize how long a mile is when you're swimming. Uh, if you walk miles not very far, many people can run or jog a mile uh, with some ease, uh, myself not included. But when you are swimming a mile, it drags on uh, forever. Uh, it, is, it is 15 to 20 minutes of pure agony. Um, it's so many laps that they have to have someone with a card counter stick it down in the water every time you get to the end of the pool because there's no way you would be able to keep track of how many laps until you get to the end. Uh, and so about halfway through the race, uh, you eventually stop caring how you're doing. If you're winning or losing, um, you just care about survival. Uh, you don't care if your coach is going to yell at you when you're done. You just want it to be finished, and you want to make it to the other side. Your form no longer matters. Nothing matters. Just, just finishing. Um, I think that's often how trials feel for us in the Christian life. Um, we know that they hurt. They feel like they're dragging on forever. And, and somewhere along the line, we run the risk of no longer caring how we're doing, no longer caring what we're doing, um, no longer caring about how we are performing, we just want to survive. We just want to make it to the other end. And so uh, the wonderful truths of Scripture uh, sometimes can become obsolete to us in the midst of trial. We lose sight and we lose perspective. Uh, and we have been living in a very trial-saturated time, have we not? Um, COVID, joblessness, a complicated social and political situation that seems to be ever-increasing in its complexity, uh, international tensions, uh, growing difficulties in our economy, and all of this on top of the 
daily struggle with family and friends and our day-to-day activities. Uh, This morning, James is going to realign our perspectives in how we should walk through trials. Um, I hope uh, for many of you, if you are in trial, this will be an encouragement to you. Um, I know there are are varying um, age groups and demographics here. If you've not walked through a serious trial in your life, I can promise you that you will. And so do not think that this is a message that is not for you. Um, I would would encourage you and exhort you to pay attention to what James has to say. Uh, Be prepared. Do not think that you can start a trial unequipped and walk through it well. Um, This, as you can see uh, in your handout, the title of this morning's sermon, How to Not Waste a Trials. Uh, Friends, a trial is a terrible thing to waste. Uh, And we will see as we work through the text this morning, uh, if we are in Christ, a trial is a wonderful opportunity. Uh, When we're in the trial, sometimes it's hard, as I said, to see anything except the trial. Um, But if we have the proper perspective, we will see why these trials are wonderful opportunities and they are terrible things to waste. Um, So the, the first way to not waste your trial, is to rejoice at God's work in you. Now look at what James says the circumstances are for this rejoicing. He says, when we encounter trials, um, I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of counterintuitive. right? When I'm, when I'm in the midst of trial, when I'm in the midst of pain, um, my first thought is not always, uh, this is a great opportunity. Right? It normally is, how, how short can I make this? What damage control can I do here to mitigate the pain or mitigate the consequences? Uh, when I'm in a trial, I just want it to be over quickly. I, I want to feel sorry for myself. I want to justify my bad or sinful responses. Um, in my flesh, the last thing that is going through my mind is that this is the right opportunity to rejoice. And yet that is exactly what James is telling us this morning. Uh, the phrase, when or whenever you meet trials of various kinds, it implies that these trials will not be a one-time thing. Uh, in fact, they are likely to be a common occurrence in our life. Uh, the structure of the Greek actually emphasizes the variety of forms that these trials can come in. Uh, so James's point here is not on the size or the type of trial that you will encounter, uh, but rather his emphasis is on how you respond to it. Uh, What might be a huge trial for some is a small trial for others, and vice versa. Uh, So his point is not in certain types of trials we should rejoice, but in all trials we should rejoice. Uh, You know, maybe maybe you're struggling in school, whatever college students are are left here for the year. Uh, Maybe you're having difficulties in your job or struggling in a certain relationship. Maybe you have a difficult home life. Uh, Maybe you're struggling with health. Uh, maybe you are struggling with something that no one here even knows about. Uh, No matter what you are struggling with this morning, uh, James is going to show us how we can respond to trials with the right perspective. And look at the reason that he gives us for our rejoicing. He says in verse 3, For you know, okay, so that for means because, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance, depending on whether you're reading the the ESV or the NASB. Uh, So our rejoicing is because we know what the trials are doing in us. Uh, We are not called 
to rejoice in trials because we love how the trials feel, right? Uh, This is not calling us to simply be masochistic and pretend that the trial somehow feels good or isn't painful. Uh, We are called to rejoice in trials because we are looking past them at what God is doing in us through them. The fact that he is producing steadfastness in us through the trial. Now listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-7. through In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's that same idea here in James. Uh, Trials confirm that our faith is genuine and they refine and they perfect it. So Peter says that it is more precious than gold. In other words, no material possession that you could have is worth more than your sanctification and the glory that Christ receives from it. We get another picture of this in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So James says in our passage here that we should rejoice in trials because God is using them to produce steadfastness, which is the same word translated as endurance in Hebrews. So God teaches us to be able to run the Christian race with endurance by bringing these trials uh, and difficulties into our lives. But what I really want to draw your attention to in this passage in Hebrews is what it says about Jesus. Uh, Hebrews says that we are to look to Jesus and that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So, Jesus endured the cross with joy because he was looking past it to the reward that God had for him on the other side. So Jesus sets the perfect example of what endurance looks like. Um, We get to rejoice because we know what God is doing in us. And when we do that, we have the supreme privilege of looking like Christ as we endure trials. Okay, so what is this steadfastness that James says is being produced? Uh, The lexicon defines this word as the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. Patience, endurance, fortitude, steadfastness, perseverance. Okay, so it's not talking about us getting a steadfastness or endurance as an action, as in, yeah, I acted steadfast that one time, and I'm glad that it's over. It's talking about us gaining it as an intrinsic attribute of our character and who we are that through this we would become a steadfast person. Um, I remember an illustration I heard once of when people climb Everest and how when they get close to the top, it becomes agony to, to breathe or to walk and they have to take two breaths for every single step and yet they press on for hours and hours. Um, that is a picture of what we are talking about here the perseverance to continue on, the ability to remain resolute and steadfast in the face of adversity, the ability to endure hardship and still press on unwavering 
That is the steadfastness that God is producing in us through trials. Um, Do you know how you learn to endure trials? By enduring trials. Uh, I know it would be very convenient if we could somehow jump to the results without the process, without the struggle. Uh, But God has designed this perfectly because he knows exactly what we need. The testing of our faith that James talks about here it is not a test of authenticity to see whether or not you are saved. Uh, it is the testing that refines. It's the process of refinement of our faith uh, to make it more complete, to make it more pure. Uh, to use a very simple analogy, you get stronger by consistently working out. Right? If you don't use your muscles, they atrophy. If you use your muscles, they get stronger. Um, if you never go to the gym, you won't get stronger Uh, By way of example, uh, the current world record deadlift is 501 kilograms, um, which is just over half a ton. It is incredible to me that a human being could lift that much weight. And he did not sit on his couch doing nothing for years and then show up and become the best deadlifter in the world, right? He practiced and he practiced and he got stronger and stronger um, until he became the very best that there is. If you have been a believer for any length of time, Think of a trial that you walked through years and years ago and how in God's kind providence you are so much stronger now, so much more mature now that if you were to go back, you could walk through that same trial with more more ease than you did at the time, right? Because God has grown you through every trial that you have endured. Uh, James says that we are to rejoice because of the steadfastness that God is producing, uh, but we have to ask, what does this rejoicing actually look like? Uh, let, let me be very clear. It is not just pretending that nothing hurts, uh, forcing a smile when somebody asks how you are doing. Uh, it's not stuffing down all your emotions and calling it joy. It isn't just getting really good at compartmentalizing. Right? It isn't just putting all of it in a box and ignoring what it is, ignoring the reality of the pain and then calling that joy, right? That just leads to more misery. Uh, Rejoicing in trials is having a settled confidence in the goodness of God and the truthfulness of his promises in such a way that we are able to look past our current circumstances to what God is accomplishing in us through those circumstances and in that we are able to have joy despite the reality of our pain. I'm going to read that one more time. Rejoicing in trials is having a settled confidence in the goodness of God and the truthfulness of his promises in such a way that we are able to look past our current circumstances to what God is accomplishing in us through those circumstances and in that we are able to have joy despite the reality of our pain. Um, there, are, there are some attributes which typically go along with steadfastness. So if you were trying to diagnose whether or not you have steadfastness and joy in the midst of a trial that you are in, um, these are some things that you should look for. Uh, These are not the same as steadfastness, but they are best friends. Uh, One is a lack of anxiousness. It is very hard to rejoice in our trials um, if we are overcome by anxiety. We typically aren't anxious and joyful at the same time. Um, So if you have a lack of anxiety um, 
then the chances are you are pursuing steadfastness and joy. If you are overcome by anxiety, um, you probably are not walking through a trial with joy. Uh, another one is contentment. If we are discontent, we are not rejoicing. Uh, but if we are content in our trial because we know that it is from the sovereign hand of God, then when we are able to rejoice in the midst of it because we trust what God is doing. Uh, notice the phrase that James uses in verse 3. He says, for you know. So he is saying that the foundation of our rejoicing in trials is having a knowledge of what the trial is producing in us. Um, so let me make this personal and ask, do you know this? Okay, I'm not asking do you have an intellectual understanding of what I'm talking about. Do you understand the, the words um, of this verse? Uh, I'm asking, do you believe this? Are you sitting here this morning resting in this? Because if you do not know this, if you don't believe this, then it is actually impossible for you to walk through trials with biblical joy. And to the degree that you doubt this, to that same degree, you will only have misery in the midst of trials and sufferings. Knowing this and believing this, James says it's the foundation of our ability to rejoice in suffering and trials. Uh, or let me ask it the other way. Do you rejoice when you are in trials? Because if you do not have joy continually, habitually in your trials, you probably don't believe this. If you look at the pattern of, you, of your life and you see that whenever life is difficult, you are anxious and angry and discontent, you probably do not believe what this verse says. Our perspective is so important. Um, if we think that trials are just fruitless and pointless pain that we must endure for no reason, we will always be miserable when life is difficult. Nothing in the world is worse than suffering needlessly. Nothing is worse than going through something painful, looking at it and say, there was literally no reason for that to have happened. That is precisely why we are able to rejoice as Christians. Because we know that if we are in Christ, there is not one ounce of suffering that is pointless or outside of God's good intentions for us. Uh, beloved, listen to me. There is not a single nanosecond of pain that you will face in this life that God has not superintended for you out of his abundant love. Every ounce of suffering and trial and pain that you go through, God providentially planned from before time because he loves you. And it fits in to his perfect plan for you to conform you into the image of Christ. He has promised to finish the work that he started in us. And as believers, there is no greater joy than knowing we are being conformed into the image of Christ. And this is how God does it. And so as we walk through suffering, we can know that it is because God loves us that he is refining our faith. Who we think God is, and what we think of his character has such a huge impact on our perspective during trials. Uh, James knows that in the midst of difficult circumstances, it is so tempting to blame God, not only for our circumstances, but for the sin that it often produces in us. 
Look at what he says, jumping ahead to verse 12. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with, e- with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So James clarifies that God brings trials into our life, but he never tempts us to sin. And he goes on to say in verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So James is drawing a connection between our view of the goodness of God and our ability to rejoice in the midst of trials. When are we most tempted to question the goodness of God? It's in the midst of difficulty. It's easy to say that God is good when life is going exactly like we want it to go. But the things that get squeezed out of our hearts during the pressure of adversity shows what we really believe about who God is. If we view God as a tyrant or as a perpetually disappointed father or as someone who is constantly looking to pull the rug out from under our feet, if we look at him as anything other than all good, always gracious, perpetually merciful, then we will become suspicious of him in trials. We will assume that he does not have in mind what is best for us, that our plans are in fact better than his, and that trials are not accomplishing anything good, but are just pointless hardships meant to make our lives more difficult. That is the trajectory of each of our hearts if we do not believe in the goodness of God during our trials. The quickest way to be miserable in a trial is to think that God is not good. Think of the words of Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. Right? That is the bedrock of our ability to rejoice in trials, is that we know that God is perfectly good and his perfectly good hand planned this trial for us because of his love for us to refine our faith and make us like Christ. So if we are in Christ, we can have confidence that in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances, God is still good. We do not have to see what good thing he is doing in order to believe that he is good. Right? We often want to know why. We question, God, why are you doing this? And it is good for us to see if God is maybe highlighting some sin in our life or some area we need to grow. But ultimately, we do not need to know why God has brought a trial into our life. He has not called us to diagnose the reason for the trial. He has called us to be faithful and to trust him in the midst of it. Douglas Moo comments on this passage. Implicit in what James says is a conviction that the suffering of believers is always under the providential control of a God who wants only the best for his people. Shall we accept the blessings of the Lord 
and yet chafe against adversity? That is the question that Job asks in chapter 2, verse 10. How much more so if we know that this adversity is accomplishing his good pleasure in our lives, which is to sanctify us and make us more like himself? Could there be any greater thing in all the world than to be made more like Christ? Let me say something that will sound slightly audacious. You do not deserve for God to bring trials into your life. Because look at what he is doing through them. He is making you like Jesus. Friends, we are, we are wretches. And yet God has chosen to conform us into the image of Christ. This is simply the vehicle that he uses for it. We don't deserve him walking us through the trials of this life and bringing them into our lives to conform us into his image. Suffering as a Christian is something that we should be grateful for, not because of the pain, but because we know what God is producing in our hearts through it. The Christian life is a life of joyful hardship. And for those who are not in Christ, that not only sounds like a contradiction, it sounds revolting. The world would say, why would I want to go through trial and how could you expect me to rejoice in it? For the Christian, it is a life of being continually refined to be more like Christ. It is a life of being continually shown your own insufficiencies so that you can learn to depend on God more. When you are young and energetic, it is easy to think that you are strong. I understand to some in this room, I look really young. And I originally preached this to middle schoolers, so I was really old. But I'm old enough to know that I'm not as energetic as I once was. When you are young and energetic, it's easy to think that you can handle whatever this world throws at you. As you get older, you come to realize there is nothing that can sustain you through the day but the grace of God. And that is why he brings trials into our lives. Because he wants to show us how insufficient and how inadequate we are so that we can learn to depend on him. Uh, so let me, let me ask you this morning, believer, does the idea of growing in Christ-likeness actually bring you joy? Can you look at the circumstances of your life and say, yes, this hurts but the joy, the incomparable joy that I have at knowing I am being made into the image of Christ is worth every drop. Can you look at your life and genuinely pray, Lord, take this all away. Grind me into dust if afterwards I can know the joy of being more like Jesus Christ. Okay, the second way do not waste your trial. Don't get in the way of God's work in you. Verse 4 says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Um, and the way that the Greek trans, uh, translates over into English, this almost sounds like a, a suggestion or something that's optional. Um, in, in the Greek, this is, this is just as much of a command. That's the first. There are, are parallel commands. We're commanded not to get in the way 
of what God is doing in us. Uh, James is commanding you to let this steadfastness have its full effect. Let it work in you. Uh, One commentator says, James exhorts his readers not to abort the testing process, but to allow steadfastness to reach its intended goal. Uh, In other words, don't stop now. Stay the course. Press on. Let God's process do what it was designed to do in you. Uh, when James says, let steadfastness have its full effect, uh, what that means is to let it work until it is finished working. Um, so let me ask the question, how do you obey a command that isn't telling you to work, telling you to let something else work? Um, to put it simply, don't do anything that would cause it to stop working or to slow down. Don't impede the process. So what are ways that we can let steadfastness not reach its goal? Uh, How do we stop steadfastness from working? Um, This is not by any means an exhaustive list, but I think these are some common ways uh, that we often get in the way of steadfastness having its full effect in us. Uh, The first one is discontentment. When we are discontent, constantly grumbling against our circumstances, we stop steadfastness from working. Uh, Discontentment shows that we are not actually trusting God in our suffering because we do not think that what he is doing is good. Another is anxiousness. Uh, Similar to discontentment, anxiousness shows that we do not trust God. Uh, But instead of questioning the goodness of God, anxiety questions the power of God says that he is not able to accomplish what he said he is going to accomplish. A third is anger. Anger shows that we think we are God. When we are angry about our circumstances, it's often because we think we could do a better job. We are not getting what we think we deserve. Instead, and so instead of submitting to God's authority over our circumstances, we become bitter at the supposed unfairness of it all. Another is laziness or apathy. Uh, this, this is the point where we just give up. Uh, life is not going the way that we want. Circumstances are just too hard. It all hurts too much, and so we decide it's easier if we just stop caring about all of it. Uh, we think that maybe if we shut down, it will stop hurting. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8, 18, Our present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Laziness or apathy is the opposite of that. Another is self-pity. Sometimes instead of laziness, we just decide to feel sorry for ourselves. Uh, We become consumed with how much we dislike our circumstances, and we start to believe that it isn't fair. We are bombarded with the lie in this world that we are victims Guys, no one here is a victim of anything. We are all sinners and none of us deserve anything good. We are not victims of circumstances. We are sinners that God is saving. We feel sorry for ourselves when we put our eyes on ourselves instead of putting our eyes on Christ. Uh, A final way that we get in the way of steadfastness having its full effect is self-reliance. 
If we think that we are adequate in our own strength, that we already possess everything that we need, uh, then we will kill our spiritual growth. Uh, Trusting in our own strength is antithetical to what God is accomplishing in us through trials. Uh, I remember a time that my pastor uh, looked me in the eye as I was complaining about my circumstances, and he said, self-reliance is misery. The fastest way to be miserable in in this life is to think that you are adequate for all of it. Okay, so those are a bunch of ways to not obey. Um, how How do we obey? Aside from striving to not have any of those qualities in our life, Uh, We obey this command very simply by running to the Lord in prayer and renewing our minds with his word and doing both of those things as often as we can. Uh, On our own, our minds will default to a trajectory away from God and away from his truth. It is frighteningly easy to lose sight of who God is in trial. It is frighteningly easy to lose sight of his truth and to slip into a pattern of prayerlessness and forsaking the word and self-reliance, if we are not actively committing ourselves to bow the knee to the word of God and to come to him in prayer, we won't. Uh, if we are filling our minds with God's truth and humbly becoming, coming before him in prayer, asking him to help us submit to that truth in faith, steadfastness will have its full effect in our lives. Uh, and look at the result of allowing steadfastness to finish its work. It says that you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Uh, this is not only the result of steadfastness running its course, it's also the motivation that James gives for why to obey this command. Uh, Douglas Moo again says, Testing, James suggests, is intended to produce when believers respond with confidence in God and a determination to endure, a wholeness of Christian character that lacks nothing in the panoply of virtues that defines godly character. Um, In other words, the seeds of steadfastness blossom into complete Christ-likeness in your life. Friends, this is where Christ-likeness starts. The steadfastness that God produces in us through trials. And when that steadfastness has run its course in our lives, we have the joy of looking like Christ, of lacking nothing in our Christian character. And the Greek here is specific. It isn't just general steadfastness it's referring to. It is looking back to the steadfastness from verse 2. So if we were to reword this, we could say, rejoice in your trials because you know that trials produce steadfastness and that same steadfastness will make you more like Christ in every way as long as you allow it to continue working. Friends, persevere. Uh, James is a very practical book with a strong emphasis on our obedience as Christians, and yet he chose to start his letter right here, speaking of our joy in trials because of what those trials produce in us. I think that was very intentional of him. That is no accident. Um, If we rejoice in our trials, if we allow steadfastness to have its full effect in our lives, we will be equipped to live the Christian life well. We will be equipped 
to obey the rest of the book of James. There is nothing sweeter in all this world than knowing that we are growing to look like Jesus. If you have not experienced any serious trial in your life yet, uh, let me, as I said in the beginning, let me encourage you to prepare yourself now. Uh, Do not think that you can take it easy and leave your heart unprotected and then you will somehow respond with maturity when trials come. Uh, Let me also say uh, that maybe you are looking at how you are responding to a current trial or how you responded to a previous trial. And you're just saying, man, I blew it. I I didn't obey this at all. I did the opposite of all of this. I did waste my trial. Let me just remind you of the abundant grace that is available to us in Christ. Grace to save and grace to sanctify. I remind you of the prodigal son who, who failed pretty miserably and whose father ran to embrace him when he returned. And may that grace encourage you to respond with joy the next time trial comes or or even today. Um, And perhaps you do have confidence that you are in Christ and you are genuinely trying to respond well to your circumstances, but you're you're in a serious trial now and and it just hurts. Uh, I hope Friends, that this is an encouragement to you. And let me just say that God sees, God knows, God cares, uh, God is in control. And if you are in Christ, then God is using all of your circumstances for your good and for his glory. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we are uh, just overwhelmed and humbled and grateful that you would choose to use the the difficulty and the adversity that we experience in this life for your own glory and for our good, that we do not have to stare at a trial, to stare at suffering and feel that it is pointless or wonder if there is any reason for it, that we can trust and have confidence that your goodness is using all of our circumstances to train us up that conform us to the image of Christ. Lord, may you realign our thinking and our hearts that we would know and believe that there is nothing better than that in all the world, that there is nothing sweeter than to know that you are making us look like Jesus and that out of your love, you are walking us through every circumstance that we can come into in this world. Lord, we... We love you and we ask that you help us to respond to your word in faith. In Christ's name, amen.